If you were a kid from West Philadelphia, born and raised, and you aspired to get into music, you needed to get noticed by two people. Will Smith and Jazzy Jeff. Now this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down, and I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there, I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. So when Troy Carter wanted to make it big, he camped out in front of the Philadelphia studio every day for months. Finally, they let him in. And after all that time waiting, the thing that Troy had been hoping for happened. Will Smith gave him a ride home and then gave him a record deal. When people look back and think about the breakthroughs that helped them to get to where they are today, for Troy, this is the big one. Add these to the pile. Troy later became the rapper Eve's manager. Yo, drop your glasses, shake your asses, face screwed up like you having hot flashes. Which one? Pick one. This one classic. He managed Lady Gaga's career and was instrumental in launching her into superstardom. More recently, he's become a tech investor and an entrepreneur. But to simply list these successes is to miss something that's so rare and so valuable and makes Troy so unique in his approach to work. It's his commitment to trying new things and learning from his failures. That Will Smith record deal? Troy was dropped from the label inside of a year without making a single dollar. He never signed a contract with Eve which meant that when she decided to move on, his business collapsed. But in these mistakes, Troy learned to innovate, identifying new paths. When radio stations refused to play Lady Gaga's music, can you believe it, he went around them. And thanks to YouTube and Twitter, brought her straight to her fans and fame. I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a show about advertising, the good, the bad and the ugly. Troy Carter has reinvented himself again and again. He went from rapper to manager to branding genius to tech entrepreneur to art collector, and he's helped reinvent the musicians he's worked with on the way. In this episode, recorded way back in April, we talked to Troy about how the music industry will have to reinvent itself in a post-COVID world and how he plans to help. How are you? Good, man. How's everything on your end? It's, you know, the sun is shining. So then half of the world seems like it's working. So I wanted to get you on the show because I know you're not a marketer, but you're probably one of the best people in marketing or people that does marketing that I've ever met. As someone who I think understands marketing intrinsically, I would love to hear, you know, your thought process when you're talking to somebody new and how you're going to work with them? I think my job is being a translator. I think that's probably the most important role that I play. Most of my career and the businesses that I built around talent management has mostly been focused around developing artists or sort of mid-career artists. So not going out signing superstars. So the vision in the beginning is 
a lot of times is in the artist's head, but they may not have the creative vocabulary to be able to articulate that to people. So my job a lot of times is to help define that vocabulary or put teams around them who can help nurture that vocabulary. And then my job from there is to be able to go and bring that to our partners, whether it's a record label, music publisher, booking agent, music supervisors, and then from there, being able to help them tell that to larger audiences. But how do we find an audience first? How do we find an audience that we feel like is going to connect with this voice and this language? And then what ends up happening is, you know, once you connect, then fans end up creating their own language to live alongside of that. So it's not sort of like what, what brands may do when they kind of think through, okay, this is our creative brief and this is our marketing message and we got to go out and buy 30-second spots or 60-second spots or Instagram ads. This is more about real human connection. Can you give us an example, You know, maybe going back in time to your first interactions with Lady Gaga and what you saw in her head and what needed translating? Yeah, I can go back even further. Like okay. with my first client that I had, Eve, Eve was an artist from Philly who grew up in the streets and like just a real definition of a round the way girl, like just tomboy, hang out with the guys, but also 100% female. And so how do we find fans that can connect with that. And, you know, she had a song called Love is Blind that talked about domestic abuse. And it talked about what a lot of young women have to go through. Hey, yo, I don't even know you and I hate you. See, all I know is that my girlfriend used to date you. How would you feel if she held you down and raped you? Tried and tried, but she never could escape you. And then even the way she dressed, it felt relatable, but still push fashion a bit as well. And then also it was authenticity. I never forget because she was a stripper and it wasn't something that was public. And this is before, you know, sort of pre-social media. But back then it wasn't something that you would just disclose openly or anything like that. And we consciously just didn't really discuss it in public. But in her first big interview, she talked about it and revealed the entire thing. And it was, it was honest, completely unplanned. I didn't even know she was going to do it. Were you worried? Yeah, I definitely <laughs> was worried because I didn't know what the reaction was going to be. Right. And the reaction was phenomenal because people connected with their story and saw her as a human being who had gone through a journey. She had a tough childhood and she made it out. And so I think we did a really good job at connecting with audiences and doing it without it feeling like a campaign. And so moving forward, signing Gaga, she connected with counterculture and with misfits and with people who were misunderstood and who looked different. She didn't get a nose job when people suggested it. She didn't take the typical pop route and dress up like other pop stars, but it was an audience of kids that sort of could connect with it. 
So I think what we did a really good job at was sort of walking this razor thin line of mainstream pop music, but also artistic counterculture, New York underground. When she first put her record out, we would open up for New Kids on the Block and then go play a gay club with 150 kids in it that same night. So it was this this sort of balance that we were able to figure out. And then, you know, you look at Megan Trainer. Megan, she dealt with body issues and things along those lines, and she owned it. So when she came out with All About That Bass, it was pride. And it was Be Who You Are. And this is, you know, sort of pre-Lizzo, where Megan was owning this, and she really connected with the average girl who most Americans and a lot of women around the world look more like Megan Trainer than they do Kylie Jenner. Right. So it's finding those audiences. And there must be something in you which is attracted to, you know, people that are prepared to be vulnerable, because I've heard I've heard you say this a few times. Yeah, you know what? It's about honesty. Because I think people naturally connect when they feel just complete authentic connections where you strip down any pretense. And so the most interesting thing that I think that's going to come out of Mm post-COVID is we've gone through another stage of artistry where everybody's stripped down. And so artists that are coming out of this sort of post-corona have a different lens of the world than artists prior to. And, you know, I remember going from pre-social media into social media, and a lot of artists pre-social media couldn't connect. And it took them a while to catch up. But you had artists that were, you know, where Twitter and um, YouTube and platforms like that were very natural to them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it took years for a lot of artists to get out of that state of mind of, okay, I got to be mysterious or I have to have this mystique and I got to put out albums every four to five years. That world changed with social media. Now, once we've come into this world of at-home live stream, Zoom, looped, all of these platforms where you're connecting at home in these very intimate environments where you don't have a stylist there, you don't have hair and makeup there, you don't have any of this. I think fans are going to be looking for even a deeper level of intimacy. And so I think the expectation has already shifted. It's almost going to feel funny when people go back to having 25 trucks of pyro and production on the road. Right. Or you, you're going to watch these award shows and it's going to be, you know, all of these huge sets and these big numbers. And you just came out of seeing people perform with their kids in the background. In the business world, what I think we're going to see is the decline of the middle manager. Because those people that have created a career for themselves being the networker, in the office, having yeah. a cup of coffee, yeah. standing next to the water cooler, connecting, picking up nuggets of information, then distributing them so that they sort of further their career yep. is, is dead. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Today, it's going to be down to what can you deliver? Can you communicate clearly through email? Can you get your message across through a paste deck or a, a keynote, whatever it is? And if you can't, it's going to become very clear very quickly who's got the talent and who hasn't. Absolutely. In the music world, it's going to be similar, right? Those artists that are able to either write themselves or get music composed for them and produce and to actually have the guts to go on and expose themselves online will win. And those that need these huge you know, productions will, I don't know if they disappear, but they're going to definitely struggle for the interim period at least. Absolutely, because it's not going to be really any live touring for the next year, let's say. Really? Yeah. And so I think, you know, it's definitely out between now and the end of the year. And then, you know, when we think about the macro economy and people actually being able to afford tickets, we think about whether people are going to feel comfortable being around 20,000 people or 1,500 people in a small club. I think behavior is definitely going to change. So, If your career was sort of built around live touring, then there definitely needs to be a shift. This is when the singer-songwriter is king or queen, where they could pick up the guitar or sit at a piano and not have to have a, a musical director or a producer or any of those things. This is when they have the advantage. So who are you excited about? You know, on our end, we signed this artist, Jensen McCray, that's just phenomenal. She's the first artist that's on Human Resources record label that, that Which we're putting is you. out. You should, you should maybe explain. Yeah, so Human Resources is our label and distribution division that my partner, Jay Irving, founded and runs. And they found this artist, Jensen McCray, 22-year-old singer-songwriter. Who was 15, still in the valley. Walking in a parking garage First time I met a wolf in person At first I thought it was a dog Probably one of the best songwriters that I've ever encountered And it's just really special Only thing she needs is a guitar So she just signed with William Morris. They were getting ready to put her out on the road. And then this happens and everybody's like, oh my God, what do we do? I'm not afraid because she's going to build an audience. So if she does a residency once a week on Instagram Live and it's only 300 people, my guess is next week is going to be 600 people. And then the following week, it'll be, you know, 1,200 people because she's just that good. But we don't have to depend on the outside forces in order to connect her because the emotional element of how she delivers is just going to naturally connect. And then also when you think about the cost structure of moving an artist around the world to go on the road, especially a developing artist that, you know, isn't getting paid big fees, that's a lot of money. So the fact that now you have permission to do it from the fans and permission from the industry, it makes our jobs a lot easier when you have artists like that. If this continues, you know, what's Coachella going to do next year? Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Like, you know, where I'm a fan of live music mm-hmm. and I have kids who love Coachella. I wouldn't want to send my kids to Coachella mm-hmm. absent some sort of vaccine that's 
pretty much eradicated the disease. But my guess is I would sit out Coachella for myself, just to be honest with you. You know, you're going to have a lot of people who still want to go out and still want to have, you know, great experiences. But how many people is going to be the question? So that's the sort of wild card. My hope is that we get back to a space where we can all enjoy live music together because I would hate for that to go away. And by no means do I think live streaming should replace it. I'd be crushed if it ever did. But I think there's going to be a happy medium between the two. What's going to happen to the music management industry, do you think, under this situation? Because again, as we were talking earlier on about people being found out, I would imagine there's quite a few music managers that are going to be found out in this phase where they're going to be seen as not so valuable. Yeah, it's, you know, it's this ever evolving role of the music manager, like where I've seen the job take on so many different things, like over the years that I've been in it. If you look at management companies now, they look more like record companies. Like you wouldn't be able to tell the difference because managers ended up having to take on so many different roles when record companies pulled back during that last recession. And especially when piracy hit and record companies pulled back services, the managers had to step in and fill in a lot of the blanks. So, you know, the smart managers are going to look at where trends are going and sort of move with those trends. And I think people who were sort of stuck in how things were done before, those are the people who are going to get left behind. And I think even for a lot of developing acts, especially sort of as they're really starting putting out music for the first time, they're not going to need managers out of the gate. And then there's also a lot of tools that are available right now that allow these artists to be able to do it themselves. They only usually need managers once the business picks up because it's very hard to navigate running a full-time business and being an artist at the same exact time. And the job that you had, so when you first started out in music management, how different is it to the job of a music manager today? It's a lot different. You have to manage a lot more now when you think about the global landscape of our business, how big it is now and how many places an artist needs to be, how many platforms an artist needs to be on, understanding data and analytics, and also the frequency of releases from any one artist is probably, you know, 15, 20x of what it was when I started. So I think that the business is a lot more complicated than it was back then. There's a lot of tools that make it a little bit easier, but I think because it's so big and so globally complex, it's definitely different. And to be honest with you, when I left management and went into Spotify and coming back into management now with our management division that we have, is even different from what it was five years ago. And how then? Going back to this idea around tools and breaking an artist and in the frequency and the level of expectation in terms of competitive landscape. So where it was unheard of for an artist to release multiple albums within a year, right? Right. And before, it was all about the album. 
Now it's about releases and projects and singles. And so it's all of those things. You know, the advantage that I have was being able to be very, very early on the streaming side and and building the division that I built at Spotify. I was very familiar with data and I was very familiar with how things worked and sort of had an advantage there. And then we basically helped introduce a, a lot of the U.S. industry to TikTok. When I left Spotify, you know, one of the first things I did was fly to China. This is right after, you know, the Musical.ly acquisition yeah, and spent it. time with the bike dance team learning about this new platform that they were launching called TikTok. So we were very, very early on that as well. But that platform didn't exist prior to to me going into Spotify and coming out. I knew that was going to be the most important platform in order to break songs. Did you invest in TikTok? No, because it was ByteDance. Mm-hmm. And ByteDance had been around for a while. And they had a platform in China called Douyin. Mm-hmm. I think it was all Chinese investors and Chinese investment fund. And I wasn't familiar with Douyin until the Musical.ly acquisition. I'm like, who is this company that just bought Musical.ly for $800 million? And so, you know, we started spending time with that team and seeing what they were up to. But I wish I would have invested. Yeah. You know, I wish I would have known about it to invest. So when you mentioned earlier on, one of the major differences between being a manager today and five years ago were the tools that were in place. That's quite a good segue to Q&A, right? Because that's what you're busy doing right now. I know that you have hundreds of angel investments and you've invested in several companies and business of your own. But the biggest bet you're making at the moment is in Q&A, right? Yes, that's my bet. (laughs) I was asking myself sort of pre-Spotify, what does the future of the music industry look like? And the question you just asked about what does management look like for the future? I've been thinking about this problem for a long time because when Gaga and I parted ways, she ended up hiring somebody that used to work for me. And then I saw Bruno, when he parted ways with his manager, he hired somebody to work for him. Taylor Swift has somebody that works for her. Beyonce, Jay-Z have people that work for them. So sort of seeing this trend of artists that weren't hiring managers and that were actually hiring like almost like COOs, which was like, holy shit, where's this thing going? How's this going to impact the business moving forward? So I just started thinking a lot about how do you diversify and future-proof the business? And, you know, the few pillars that I looked at was, one, I think in terms of enterprise software for the music industry, it's been a thing that no one's really put a lot of focus into. And so that was a thing that I thought about sort of what does the future distribution look like? What does supply chain look like? What does workflow software, your everyday software, if you're running a label, looks like? And so that was my sort of component that I really was focused on leaving Spotify. But one of the things that I knew was, one, to get the learnings and also to be able to have artists that can kind of flow through that platform from day one And then talent management is just in my bones. So we started a new talent management division as well. And when I first met you, I think you were trying to get away from the talent management part because it it was eating up too much (laughs) of your time, right? And it was interfering with work life. Is it still or have you got it under control? 
You know, I built out a really great team before okay. it was really about, about me. And that part is what ate up a lot of my time because it's like where the artist basically, you know, it was, okay, what does Troy think? Or where's Troy at? Or if I'm starting this thing, I need Troy here physically. It just was taxing. And what I did out of the gate this time, just from the very beginning, was I pretty much built the team before I even signed artists, essentially, and spent a lot of time making sure that it was a strong foundation underneath of people who I felt like had great skills and talent that they could bring to an artist's career. So I think that's been the balance. So where it doesn't necessarily have to be me 100% of the time, but they can talk to me, but they can also talk to three or four other people in the organization that probably know a lot more than me about whatever that subject is that that artist may want to talk about. And you're going to launch this new company sometime soon, but it's it's not launched and it's not making any money. No, we're actually making money. Oh, you are? Yeah. So that was, you know, one of the things, just being able to merge with Human Resources, um, Jay Irvin's group, and, you know, help Jay scale that business where, you know, that business makes money. And even on the management side of the business is profitable, which is great. So um, the management business is a business that I'm so comfortable in because I understand how outside of just managing the artists, how to actually build a profitable business in that space that's very high margin. So that's another reason why that was an important component because I didn't want the business to run on negative margins as we were building the software. So I had to be able to figure out how do we finance this so we're not in this perpetual fundraise. You know, I'm from the old school when it comes to businesses should make money. Unfortunately, with what we're heading towards, it's probably quite useful to be in that position too. Yeah, you know, not to say that it wasn't scary sort of looking at, okay, touring is completely going away for a year. Where we were lucky is that touring wasn't that big of a piece of our projections for this year because, you know, we have artists that are on the rise. So it wasn't significant enough to like sort of paralyze the business. So that part was good. And on top of all of this stuff that you're doing, invested in Spotify, Warby Barger, Uber, Lyft, Dropbox, Slack, you name it. And then I know you've got tons of angel investments on the side. On top of music management and on top of the work that you do and the time that you've given to companies like ours over the years, you also manage the Prince Estate. Yeah, so I just, uh, Prince Estate is pretty much managed through the new company's management division. Okay. So that way I didn't have to um, have it feel separated. So it's all part of it as well. And if there's somebody that people can learn from, it's got to be Prince in terms of reinvention and you know, managing to come out of a crisis. I mean, there are not many more people you could learn from than someone like Prince. Yeah, Prince, you know, he's a special guy. You know, we're doing this interview on the anniversary of his death. So just waking up this morning, thinking a lot about him. And also I just watched his last concert at Paisley Park, this piano and a microphone concert, which was, you know, as we talk about intimacy and, you know, with just him and the piano. Most people aren't used to seeing Prince sit behind a piano. And his last act in life was reinvention. He put away the guitar. Right. He put away the guitar. 
he asked that no musicians be in a room that night for that concert because he didn't want to have a crutch of other musicians actually coming and playing with him. He wanted it just to be him and that piano. And so this was a guy who constantly pushed himself and would not settle for any sort of status quo, anything of, you know, this is the norm. He, he just wouldn't do it. He wouldn't allow himself to do it. Don't you ever pinch yourself and think, how on earth did I get here? Because your, your beginnings are very humble. You've achieved an incredible amount, right? Do you not sit there and think, oh, I'm good now. I should probably take it easy. What keeps you going? One, you know, I thought about that today in terms of pinch yourself. Our historian who works for the estate sent a beautiful note to the team just about what it meant to work with this team on Prince and how important it is. And, you know, when I read his note, it was like a pinch yourself that this kid from West Philly who grew up loving Prince, like loving, loving, loving Prince. And even as I came into the business, just watching everything that he's accomplished and how am I even overseeing this right now? It's not like me and him were friends or anything like that, you know, when he was alive. Um, It's not like we worked together when he was alive, but I'm a firm believer in fate. And for some reason, that was part of my fate, that I'm here working on it, and I don't take that for granted. And then your question about should I just lay back, me and my wife just had this conversation the other day with our therapist (laughs) and kind of... One of the things with me, I know I define myself through my work. And that might not be a great thing. And for whatever reason, and also I express love through my work. How then? How do you do that? I think just seeing my grandfather get up in the morning, go to work every day, seeing my mom get up and go to work early in the morning every day. I think being a provider is probably something that was baked into me from like, very formative stages. Mm -hmm. So providing for my family and being able to do things for other people and help other people is a part of how I express love or affection. And that's a big thing for me. So I think that's tied into my work ethic. I just so happen to love what I do as well. So when I didn't like management anymore and I felt like burned out, that's when I took a step back. And that's when I actually went into Spotify. At that point, I didn't feel challenged anymore. I felt like I wanted to do something else. And also I felt like it wasn't fair to artists if I'm not getting up in the morning super excited about working on projects and wanting to conquer the world with certain people. So I'm fueled by passion. So as long as I'm passionate, I think I'm going to continue to work. And then also, you know, just you watch certain people who retire and deteriorate because they're not mentally stimulated anymore. And, you know, so I think the mental stimulation is very important to me. And, um, And hopefully, you know, I just can find things that I'm always curious about and hang with people that I always feel like I can learn from and be inspired by. And that concludes not only our interview this week, but Influence's second season. A massive thank you to Troy for his vulnerability and honesty. It's always a pleasure. 
Influence is hosted by me, Damien Bradfield. Our producer is Rachel Swaby, with editing from Elise Hugh and sound engineering from Mr. Mark Bush. A massive thank you to Centre Sound, our excellent studio in Amsterdam. You can find Influence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. To get season three automatically beamed to your phone when it comes out, please subscribe to the show. Leave us a rating or review. That certainly helps too. And you can follow me on Twitter at DJ Bradfield. Influence is a podcast from the amazing company we transfer, produced in association with another amazing company called Reasonable Volume. We hope to see you back here in a few months. Thank <laughs> you.